So welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I almost forgot my name right there because I just came in from a walk. Uh, today we have Dr. David Rowland, who is a writer, presenter, and psychologist. Uh, you were a clinical and forensic psychologist, um, and then you had a stroke. What year was the stroke, doctor? Uh, the stroke was in 2009, Leo, but before that I developed post-traumatic stress disorder from my work as a forensic psychologist. So I, I'm fascinated by your work as a forensic psychologist because I have a master's in counseling psych and I used to counsel inmates and my mentor was a forensic psychologist. So please, for the listeners, explain to them what a forensic psychologist is and then what the uh, trigger for the PTSD was. Sure. Well, look, I, I must, I have to admit up front that the type of forensic psychologist I was was pretty unsexy. It wasn't the stuff of TV dramas. <laughs> but, and, and I fell into it by default because, uh, you know, I'm in Australia and I don't know how it is in the States or in other countries. But when I started out in psychology and you don't have any experience, you've graduated from university, you really have to start at the bottom rung of the ladder, basically the first job you can get. And the first job I could get was working in a prison. And interestingly, in this prison, uh, we had a lot of Indigenous Australians, Aboriginals come because it was in an area. Dr. Rowland, I have to cut you off. The mic is hitting uh, the zipper on your jacket. Uh, uh, so if you have to hold it out or if you could just say, there we go, there we go. Yeah, because I, I want the people to hear this whole, I'm fascinated, Indigenous, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Please continue. So this was a, a medium security prison in the country, and I had never come across uh, heroin addicts or murderers or pedophiles or, you know, the worst of the worst. So this, this particular prison housed a lot of life sentence prisoners who were going to see their days out in prison, but they weren't troublemaker-type inmates. And then there were remand inmates, and this is where I saw a lot of the Aboriginals, Indigenous, Indigenous Australians, who often came in for relatively minor offences, so they were awaiting trial. So I saw the whole lot, and this was in the early days when the heroin epidemic was really kicking off. We're talking, you know, the early 1980s, and there was no rehab at all for... Uh, heroin addicts or alcoholics, for that matter, in, in the prison system. And so I just immediately thought, I'd like to do something that's useful for them. They've got all this time on their hands. So I started a group, a weekly group, where I invited anyone who self-identified as being an addict or an alcoholic, and we would have this weekly group. Now, I became so interested in that whole addiction story and realized that a lot of people end up in addiction because of pretty troubled uh, childhoods or life circumstances where there weren't a lot of choices. And it really struck me that if I'd grown up in some of the circumstances that these guys had grown up in, I could have been in that therapy group. And that was a really major insight for me, quite unsettling really, you know, how it is that some of us get a good start in life and others don't, and that can lead to this flow-on effect that we see and that I was seeing in the incarceration system. But because I became known as a psychologist that was interested in rehab within the prison system for addictions, I was invited then to go to Sydney 
And in, in Sydney, they had a major, major new jail that was high security and that they'd set up a specialist drug and alcohol unit within the prison system. And these guys would do like a 90-day a rehab within that. And I was invited then to run the therapy program for that. So this is how I got started in forensic psychology. But later on, I really liked this idea of assessing people, working out their life story, and then communicating that to the court system. So later on in my private practice, I had half my practice just devoted to uh, doing reports for uh, people that were accused of criminal crimes, but they'd been pleaded guilty and the, and the court wanted to have a better understanding of their life story and if they had any rehab prospects. And also the children's court clinic. So children that had been removed from their family and the court was trying to decide, can they go back to the parents or the, the extended family or do we need to look at something else? So they were family assessments. So I'd be assessing the parents, the children, the grandparents, anybody else that was relevant. And I did that work for about five years towards the end of my, my private practice period. And it was really that work that undid me because I was hearing such bad stories, seeing children in circumstances, and I had three daughters at that point that were similar ages to the children I was assessing. And I would go home and imagine what would be like if my daughters were in that situation. And I just felt terrible. And I started developing nightmares. I started to get what I now recognize was depression. And for the first time in my career, and we're talking 20 plus years at this point, I did not look forward to going to work. Yeah, I've I've heard uh, that term compassion fatigue, where your heart just goes out to the people that you're trying to help, and you, you end up giving so much of yourself emotionally that that it drains you. And and uh, and you know, and people who go into this type of work, social workers, first responders, we're very bad at taking care of ourselves and very good at taking care of everyone else. Uh, did you experience that? Where did you were you taking the holidays and the weekends as you should, or, or were you one of those you know showing up early and coming home late? I think I recognised Leo that I did need to take care of myself, so I was pretty good at taking time out and going for holidays. I was self-employed, so I could go for holidays when I wanted to. And I found that I increasingly needed to take longer periods of time off. So that was a sign. And also I was starting to drink a bit more heavily, you know, like I used to like a wine or occasional beer, but I was needing twice what I would normally drink uh, and getting those nightmares I was telling you about. But I think what I now recognise, and this is in my book, How I Rescued My Brain, how I discovered this, this whole story is in that book, is that there's a difference between emotional contagion, empathy, and compassion. So what you're describing, which you call compassion fatigue, and that is a common term, but I actually think it's not the best term. It's better to call it empathy fatigue. So this is where we, we're very good, people like myself and you are very good at putting ourselves into the other person's shoes and when we do that, we re-experience secondhand what they're experiencing. We're experiencing that on a physiological level, on an emotional level, and on a thinking level. So we're actually dipping into their suffering each time we do that. And when we do it day in, day out, obviously that's going to have a cumulative effect. 
So that's empathy fatigue. Compassion seems to be a different mind state altogether. Uh, emotional contagion is when we're in a crowd and we pick up on the feelings of everybody else without uh, consciously trying to do that, like if we're in a football stadium or we're at a concert. We just pick up on the mood of the crowd. Empathy is when we purposely put ourselves into someone else's shoes to try and feel what they're feeling so that we can relate to their experience. Compassion goes through empathy to another state where we feel for the person and we've got an understanding of what they're going through, but we're not pulled down by it. And I actually discovered this when I met a neuroscientist, Tanya Singer, who was from a German research institute, who actually put Matal Ricard, who's a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and also an ex-scientist, in a functional MRI machine and got him to empathize with the suffering in all the world. So he's a very experienced meditator. So he could do that. And when he came out of the MRI machine, he, she said, how do you feel? He said, I feel terrible. You know, I feel I've taken on the suffering of the world. It's awful. Um, so they talked about that for a while. And then she, he said, do you mind if I go back into the machine and do my normal meditation, which is more of a compassion-focused meditation, offering loving kindness to all those who are suffering? And she said, sure. And so he went back into the machine and she monitored what was happening in his brain while he was doing that. And amazingly, it was activating different neural networks than the one that the empathy one was doing. There was a crossover, but it was a distinctly different network. And when he came out of the machine, he said, oh, I feel so much better. Thank you. <laughs> and so that led to Tanya Singer developing a program to train people that um, go through to you know, deal with other people's distress in compassion mindset and when they did that they could be with the person in their distress but not feel pulled down by it and you know part of my story was developing that compassion mindset myself and so I experienced firsthand that when I was in that mind state I could be with people in their suffering and they felt my presence very much it wasn't like I was distant from them but I didn't feel pulled down I actually felt quite elevated. I thought, I can offer you something, but I'm not being drowned in your sorrow. Can you give us uh, an example of that? Because with so much going on in the news and uh, people being, uh, quote unquote, triggered or feeling overwhelmed by, uh, you know, the tragedies that are taking place in different parts of the world, how, how do, what does that look like to have compassion for someone or for a group of people but not get pulled down by it? It's, it's a great question and a really hard one to answer, Leo. Um, I find it quite hard to describe in words what the compassionate mindset uh, is because it's a very strong feeling. It's a feeling that feels quite different from being empathy. So when I was researching for my new book, The Power of Suffering, I was deliberately seeking out people that have been through major life crises, had survived them, but also grown in positive ways. And what I was trying to do then was to be with their suffering and not be overwhelmed by it. Oh, Leo, I've just got somebody at the front door. <laughs> All right, we'll pause there. <laughs> That's funny. 
I love it. <laughs> <laughs> We're just so, talking about disruption. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, you're talking about compassion and saying that uh, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to uh, put words to. Um, is, is there a, uh, I guess if there's not a way to describe it, how do you know when you are, um, showing compassion versus, uh, over empathizing or, um, you know, caught up in the contagion? I think, uh, I think one of the ways you can do that, if we think of compassion as not as more than kindness, it's 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 being courageous actually it's going towards the suffering of another and trying to alleviate the suffering but not losing ourselves in that suffering that's really easy for me to say it's not always easy to do but we can think of what that's like what that felt experience is like when we think about how we may have cared for somebody else that we're concerned for a friend or a loved one we're concerned for them and they're going through suffering what do we do you know, how do we treat them? Uh, how do we care for them? So being compassionate then is caring for ourselves in the same way we would a loved one. So if we're experiencing distress, you know, because of the state of the world or because something's happened in our lives that's disrupted us, you know, we've lost a job or, or experienced divorce, whatever, how would we care for ourselves like we would a loved one? We would do a lot of soothing and, you know, that can be physical soothing, you know, sort of the type of soothing breathing or the hand on the chest, uh, anything else that relaxes that fight-flight response and goes into the soothing response, which is inherent in all of us. Um, and we yeah. can use uh, particular meditations to do that as well. Yeah, I'm glad you, you talked about the soothing. One of the things that Michelle, my girlfriend, does uh, when I feel a bit anxious is place both her palms on my chest to help uh, to soothe me. And it, it works wonders. I, I can't believe what two palms on the chest can do to a person's nervous system, uh, but it completely calms the amygdala. What, when you, what works for you in terms of soothing you when you are in times of distress or anxiety? Uh, just, just say evolutionarily speaking, Leo, that, that soothing response is activating the caregiving response that is part of mammals. You know, we've been evolved to be caregivers. When we think about how we care for our young, for humans, we've got the longest period of caring for our young of any other mammal species. So if we didn't have a built-in caring system and a built-in, you know, affiliation system, we couldn't care for our young. We would just go off, you know. We, we wouldn't be bothered anymore. So when, you're, when Michelle is resting her hands on her chest, she's treating you like she might a baby or a young, a young child. And that physiologically is activating this self-soothing system or caregiving system, which is inherent in us. And it automatically turns off the fight-flight response and the drive systems, which are also always operating as well. And now I've forgotten your question, Mia. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I, you know, I, I'd love to jump into, you, you talked about having uh, PTSD and, uh, you know, working with the children and, and family services. I can't even imagine all the different emotions that you were going through, especially 
as you're starting to filter the, the world through your, your, the, the, the lens of your three daughters, um, you know, and they were young at that time. Um, what else were you going through? You talked about a depression. What did that look like? And, and how did you pull yourself through the depression? I, I've, I uh, am not normally a depressive sort of person. So, and I always look forward to my day and have a lot of interest. So I, depression to me at that time looked like the strange feeling of not actually wanting to get out of bed and go off and do my day or, you know, not doing my normal physical exercise, just lacking that enthusiasm. And then, you know, watching the news or something bad happening to anyone anywhere in the world and just starting to cry. And I realized something was wrong. So that depression um, got me to go and see, you know, more senior clinical psychologists in my area. And because I was getting these nightmares and I worked with a lot of trauma victims, including, you know, Vietnam veterans, for example, I knew what PTSD was, what the symptoms were, and I was thinking maybe I've got that, but I've managed secondhand trauma. And he identified that I did have post-traumatic stress disorder, and now we call it vicarious trauma, although I did have some experiences in the workplace where I felt my life might have been threatened, but mostly it was this secondhand trauma. And it may have, the feeling was mostly of a sense of chaos, that, that my world, I had no control in my world anymore. So I would be walking along the street and I would just start to think that maybe a terrorist is going to come along and blow up a bomb uh, or, you know, somebody was going to mug me or I had to sit near the door of a restaurant just in case I needed to get out quickly, even though there was no reason to suspect there was any problem and it's not something I'd ever experienced before. So they were some of the symptoms that I was getting. And, you know, you, you said you went to go talk to the psychologist and, and work with him and because your symptoms of not wanting to get out of bed. I know there's days for a lot of people out there where taking a shower is the hardest thing to do in the world uh, and you don't want to exercise. It just it almost feels like you're walking through mud. Um, what were some of the techniques and strategies and, and, and tools that he gave you to help you work through that? I know earlier you talked about ways to soothe yourself? Were there things specifically that you two collaborated on? Yeah, I think uh, the, we mainly worked on the trauma side. So there were probably two crucial, probably three crucial things that my therapist offered me. One was a safe place and at a place where I knew I would be understood and that I could bring anything I needed to talk about to that place. And, you know, that creating that safe place with someone and that trust and that understanding takes a bit of time, as you know. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was that, that he worked specifically on the trauma memories that I was getting. And I hadn't realised how much of those early jail experiences had come, come back to haunt me. So some of these memories were 20-plus years old. And he would go through a desensitization process where I would bring it to mind and he would guide me through, through you know, desensitizing the image. He'd studied a lot of Ericksonian hypnosis and he'd done his whole PhD on trauma with Vietnam veterans. 
So he was very experienced at helping to just desensitize the, the memory and I would have visual memory as well as sensory memory. And I could still remember these things, but the sting would just come out of them. So they were more like an everyday kind of memory rather than an em- a memory that paralyzed me. And I guess the final thing that he did was he said, David, you're going through a distressing period. You've got this amazing training and experience. You probably, you've done enough time at the coalface, so I don't think you're going to go back to doing what you've done. But I think there's a story going forward, but you need to find that out and that might take some time. And interestingly, I was journaling through this whole experience. I found that keeping a daily journal, I would meditate in the mornings for at least 20 20 minutes and then I would journal right away and I would just write about what had happened the day before, anything that was on my mind. I would write it out and just that writing out seemed to release some of the emotion out of it and it was in that journaling which I did for several years that my book eventually emerged because I would read back over my journal things and I'd see how far I had progressed but wow I used to think like this but now I'm thinking like this gee there's a story here and that's when I spoke to a writer a professional writer and said look I've had this experience do you think this is a book and do you think it's a book that's worth telling and he said yes. So then we began, I began another type of writing exercise, which was both healing as well as a way, you know, that would progress my ideas to get them out in print and out into the world. I love that. You know, I really want to unpack uh, the, the three things you just mentioned. One is you talked about the first step is he created a, a safe space. And as you mentioned, it's, it's so hard to do that in a therapeutic setting but also challenging to do that within a context of a relationship. Uh, And I bring that up because I realize that for a lot of couples in conflict, even though we're not talking about that, um, a lot, a lot of it is fundamentally the fact that neither side feels safe enough to share their full emotions, to express all of their feelings uh, for one reason or the other. And, and when we talk about trust, we usually think about it in the realm of infidelity, of, of uh, you know, someone sleeping with the other person. But uh, I've always believed that uh, the breakdown in trust starts with uh, emotional um, uh, uh, mishandling of, or, or just mishandling of, of the other person's emotions or uh, denouncing them in some way. And so now you feel, you don't feel safe to express what you're going through, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Uh, within a context of your your relationship, um, and I don't, I don't know if you if that resonates with you on any level, uh, Doctor Rowland. Oh yes, I think so. And you know, I we I experienced some I experienced relationship breakdown through this whole period of the PTSD and then the stroke that came out of the blue. We were also in extreme financial stress. This was around the time of the global financial crisis. So I have great, great empathy and lived understanding of people that are going through financial uh, hardship and catastrophe at the moment because we went through that. And that, you know, some couples will survive a major upheaval and actually come closer together because they've had to work through it together and others will come apart. And in our case, we came apart. 
And one of the things that we did do was go for some couples counselling during this time. But, you know, we were both under such threat. It probably was a very difficult time for us to feel that sense of safety. But what I would say in relationship to the couple counselling or relationship counselling or the relationship situation uh, that you're describing, sometimes we need to find that safe place outside of the relationship even you know it's a step sideways so i need to say some things that i don't feel i can say to my partner i need to get them out there i need to somebody to examine them for me we need to talk it through and then i might come back to my partner and i can uh you know approach it in another way so we the first step is finding places of safety and if nothing else you know writing in a private journal is a form is a safe place Absolutely. I, I love that. Um, and then the second part where you talked about, um, he worked on your trauma memories by desensitizing, uh, the, the helping you desensitize some of the memories. What, what, how did he walk you through that? Did he have you replay it out and then have you respond in a different way or did he help you reframe what the situation was? Can you give us just a, a bit of what that process was like? Yes, I can give you a taste of it. So he, obviously, you know, in the first place, we talk, we've got that trust set up and, and I know that he's looking out for me. So he's not, he, he really emphasised, I'm not going to take you further than you want to go. You're always in control. You're in control of what memories you bring up. You're in control of how long you hold that memory. So if you want to let it go, you can let it go. And uh, he had me close my eyes. And, you know, I would just, he said, you know, raise your index finger if, if at some point, you know, your left index finger, if at some point it's too distressing and you want to stop. Uh, but the other finger, the right index finger, when you've got a memory that you want to work with. So what I experienced was like a slideshow of just memories passing by in my internal visual field and then one would stick. It would just seem one would just naturally stay there. And so I'd indicate my finger and he'd say, now describe the memory. So I would describe it to him and then he would say, um, now, you know, this because how old were you at this time and, you know, what were you experiencing at this time? So I would tell him that. And he would say, now as your older self, I want you to talk to your younger self who was having this experience that's in this memory, how would you, what would, what wise things would you want to say to that younger person? So like I said, some of these memories are 20 something years old. So I certainly had a much more adult, more mature, wiser perspective that I could offer. And so I would talk to myself saying out loud, still with my eyes closed, talk to my younger self and say, you were doing the best you could. You, you were a caring person. You were in a situation that was a bit above your head. You didn't deserve to have this experience. And then that really diffused a lot of the emotion. And then he asked me to give my younger self a hug. I love all of that. Um, it, it reminds me of one of the questions that I ask myself on a daily basis of, 
did I do my best today? Did I do my best to feel happy? Did I do my best to feel engaged? Uh, it's just, did you do your best? Uh, and, uh, and I love that you uh, uh, talk about showing compassion for yourself, right? When we look at ourselves as a nine-year-old version of ourselves, it's, it's a lot easier to, to have compassion and, and understanding. Uh, I, I said nine-year-old, but in your case, it was 27 years old. But, uh, but so I, I love that idea of like, what would you say to your younger self now in that situation and, and realizing uh, all the obstacles and challenges that, that you had to overcome just to do your job at that moment? And Go ahead. I, I might add one other aspect to that, that Leo, was, you know, I, I said I then spoke to a professional writer to see if I had a book that I could write about my recovery from stroke and trauma. And he said, yes. I said, well, where do I start? He said, you just start with the, with the memories, the stories that first pop into your head and you write out those stories. And I found myself going right back to my childhood and I had a good childhood and I was writing about childhood experiences. And then naturally it just flowed to, you know, when I took that first job in the prison. And one of the things I was, that was bothering me uh, was had I had I brought upon myself these events, had I created, in a sense, my PTSD, my stroke and my marriage relationship difficulties. And when I went through that writing, I realised that each step of the way I made a sensible choice with what I knew at the time. I wasn't careless. I was young. I had whatever life experience I had, whatever insights I had had my training, I had my support people. And so I made nobody at those, any of those stages said, no, that's a stupid thing to do, you know. So that released me from the shame, from that sense that I had created any of that myself. Uh, that's beautiful. How you released yourself from the shame is so beautiful. And, and I, I want to get into, we, we talked about you working in a, in a court system and then the PTSD that accompanied that, the depression. Um, and then at some point you had a stroke. So at you're 27, about when we we're talking about the court system. At, how old were you when you had your stroke? I was 51. And, and so can you talk to us uh, about the circumstances surrounding that? Because uh, there was one point during uh, the stroke that, where you felt suicidal and and so talk us through through all that. I I'm pleased to talk about that, Leo. Even though, of course, it's difficult, but I've moved on a lot. It's amazing to me how far that experience seems to be now. It's almost like talking about somebody else. So it was a combination of things. As I said, I had the PTSD. I had to close my practice thinking I'd get well pretty quickly, but it took two years before I started to feel on top of things again. And that's when we had the stroke. And I do believe that the stroke came about because of the financial stress we were experiencing. This is, you know, the aftermath of the global financial crisis. We had three school-aged children. My wife's business had been impacted by the, the global financial crisis, so there was no income there. Uh, we'd used up all our life savings, you know, we, we had mortgages, so we were being hammered by, by banks. And uh, 
the stroke, I had no medical reason to have the stroke, but my physician later said, I, in your case, I do believe it was the stress, probably a sudden elevation of blood pressure and, you know, just a stray little particle went up to the artery in the brain. So my, my, uh, my wife found me woken one morning, dressed as if I was to go to work, and I hadn't worked for two years. And I kept saying, what am I supposed to be doing today? And she would tell me. It was actually the school holidays. I was supposed to take two of the girls to a school camp. And, you know, minutes later, I'd ask her the same question. What am I supposed to be doing today? So she, you know, worked out something was wrong. And she said, told me later that I was very, very cold to touch and almost looking a bit green. And I was speaking in a very dreamy kind of voice. So she rushed me to the local general hospital. And, you know, we live in the country, even though it's a largish hospital, they didn't have a neurologist on the team. So in the end, I didn't get a, an MRI test. I didn't get a neurologist examining me, just a general physician who was on duty at the hospital. And he thought that because I was suffering major amnesia, I didn't actually have any obvious physical symptoms of the stroke. I didn't have any drooping or any loss of mobility, but I just had this dreamy way of speaking and, and I must have just looked as if I was off the planet. I didn't even know I was in a hospital. And I'm sitting in the waiting room and I think, oh, this is very interesting. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't even ask myself, what am I doing here? I just thought, this is very interesting. Oh, look at that person. And I noticed that most of the people that were there looked quite downhearted. You know, they're looking down at the floor. There was a young child that was moaning and the parents were trying to shush her and read her books. And, you know, eventually I had to go up and speak to the nurse who I later find out was the triage nurse. And then I saw somebody else who was wearing a white coat and then somebody who said he was a doctor. And then they put me into the hospital that night for examination. And it was only really um, when they put me into a hospital ward during the night that I thought, oh, I'm in hospital. <laughs> and that whole first day seemed like about an hour long. That's about how much memory I had. So I actually got misdiagnosed. They sent me off to a psychiatric hospital because they thought given his history of PTSD, he's got amnesia, it's probably, and the stress from the financial side of things, he's probably got some psychogenic amnesia, which is, you know, just amnesia brought on by stress. So they sent me to a psychiatric clinic. And after a while, I started to, to realise that, sorry, when I got there, that was the lowest point because I thought I've totally had a nervous breakdown. I was this high-functioning person. I was the professional now I'm the patient and I've got no idea what's going on. And uh, it actually took three weeks before I got the proper brain scan that showed I'd had a stroke rather than a nervous breakdown. So this is all a backstory to tell you that there were some very, very low points where I thought I'm of actually no use to anybody. I've got no contribution to make to the world. My family would be better off without me because I'm irritable. You know, and, and with the stroke, I had a lot of auditory processing difficulties, which meant that sensory input and particularly sound was overwhelming. So I'd have to tell the kids to be quiet. And there were quite a few points in that, that year or so afterwards 
where I get very strong suicidal ideation to the point where I felt like I had to hold on to the furniture to stop me from going out and doing, you know, what I imagined I would do. Um, but, you know, Leo, there was a point and it took about uh, three months or six months after the stroke where I was sort of stable, but I would call it a joyless existence. I was in this joyless existence. And by this stage, uh, we, I was getting some insurance money from an insurance policy that I'd taken out many years before, an income protection policy. So we had, we had enough money to get by. And I thought, maybe this is it for the rest of my life. I'm just going to be a joyless person. I've got enough income just to get by. Um, the kids will grow up and, you know, dad will be just that sick person in the corner. And when I visualized my daughters growing up with this joyless father or with, or even worse, without a father, you know, if I actually did follow through, I thought, I do not want that for them. And so it was for them that I decided not only would I not, you know, follow through on any suicidal ideation, I would get well again. I wanted to get joy back in my life. I wanted to bring joy to them. And I wanted to be a father that was for them for as long as I could be there. You, you know, w- the power of that story ties into the, the three-prong model of suicidality or one of the, the models of suicidality in that um, at the first level, if someone is in, uh, having, you know, uh, chronic pain or extreme pain and they have a feeling of uh, hopelessness, then they they go to step two, which is, are there people or is there a purpose that can anchor them and mitigate any of the pain, uh, traumas or tragedies that they're going through? And if that's not there, if they don't have people or a purpose, then we look at step three, which is do they have means to to complete the act? And and if those things are, if, if you have that third piece, then the the chances of suicide are extremely high. So, you know, you saying that your three daughters are what tethered you and and not only tethered you, but made you want to grow and thrive and and figure out how to transform this pain into something uh, purposeful and meaningful for you. Uh, It 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 falls in line with with that model. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. How old are your daughters now? Uh, they're all young adults, so they're 19, 21, and 24, and doing fabulously. I describe them as being like three different, you know, cuisines, three types of different foods, because they're quite different personalities, but cuisines that when you put them all on the table together work beautifully. So they get on famously, but they're such different individuals. I, I, could, I could tell by the look on your face uh, how... <laughs> Uh, the amount of joy that they've brought you and how rewarding it, uh, it, the, the whole experience has been, uh, despite all the, the financial setbacks, the heartaches, the, the depression, the suicidality that uh, you've come out uh, onto the other side. Uh, thanks, Leo. And, and, you know, in my new book, The Power of Suffering, I just might mention that there's one story of a, uh, an Australian footballer who, you know, very high-profile footballer called Ian Roberts. Uh, he's had some amazing achievements in his life, but after his professional football, he fell into a heap 
And there was also a relationship breakdown around the same time. And he went into a very suicidal state. He didn't know what to do, but he was always been an animal lover, but hadn't had pets. So he went out and bought two cats that he named Bill and Ben. And he credits those cats with rescuing him because he said, now I have some, something or somebody to care for. They need me. That, that you know, when you watch those, uh, there's a movie called The Professional, and there was this guy who he was a hired hitman. And although you know, every now and again he'd go out and 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 kill somebody that he was paid to kill, he had a plant that he took care of, and and he talked to the plant, he nurtured that plant, and it meant everything to him. And and it, and it reminds me of that of like we all need something to take care of. We need something larger than ourselves. Uh, to, to give us a sense of, of purpose and meaning. And, and I might add to that, Leo, that one of the uh, outcomes of my investigation into human suffering and how we grow through the suffering uh, is that uh, being human is to care and caring is to be human. So it's actually that inherent part of ourselves and even anthropologists who've looked way back into prehistory, you know, to Paleolithic peoples, have found fossil evidence of cave people, like even Neanderthals, looking after those that are disabled or, you know, obviously have a disease that shows up in their bones who couldn't have contributed physically greatly, you know, as in hunting and so on or gathering, but that they've been cared for much longer than than you would think if it was just an economical decision. So that caring response, when we cultivate that, not only does it uh, make us feel better, but in, in my investigation into suffering, I found that those who grew through the suffering also grew in spiritual ways. And I'm using spiritual in a broad sense here to mean thinking beyond myself, think, creating a smaller we, sorry, a smaller I and a bigger we. So thinking beyond myself, and when we do that, uh, we seem to be happier, more content people. Yeah, that's why God's been around for so long, right? Like some yeah. version of God or gods or Greek gods or Zeus or, you know, worshiping plants. We've always, from day one, have seemed to need uh, 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 some type of deity or, or something to bow down to something to uh, surrender to or, or give ourselves over to. Um, and, and so, the, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And, uh, you know, what's interesting when I think about that, Toys, I also think about, you know, some people get married and have kids with the hope that that's going to be the thing that, that gives them purpose. And I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm, this is kind of off topic, but um, how do we, how do we explore what will actually give us purpose? Because I think a lot of times we think the thing that will give us purpose is what has given somebody else purpose. How do we discover that for ourselves, I guess, is what I'm asking you. I, I think that's actually a lifelong journey, Leo. And it, there's no magic formula for it. So it, and I'll make a distinction between purpose and meaning. You know, you, you talked about, you know, uh, a couple having children and that would give them purpose. And, of course, it's going to give them purpose because 
Now they have somebody else to care for that's dependent on them. So that means they've got to provide shelter, you know, food, education, you know, medical care. So suddenly you've, you've inherited a lot of purpose just by that one act. Um, but is it meaningful? That's the other question. So I think meaning something becoming meaningful is like when the purpose aligns with your values and what you see is important. So if, you know, if I, like I had a value in the story I was telling you about that if I bring children into the world, I want to be there to care for them in whatever way they need. I didn't want to be a father that would have a child and then just walk away from the responsibility, not just because of the responsibility, but I actually wanted to help create, you know, beautiful human beings. So that was one of my values. So that became a meaningful purpose for me. Also, my work, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually a pretty bright guy and, you know, pretty much anything I decide to do, I, I get, I achieve it or I get somewhere close to it. But I chose a profession that, you know, is helping other people and I don't know why I had that in the first place. Maybe it's my parents and some of what I've inherited and my background. But, you know, that's always been really important to me to reach out to help others in ways that I can, you know, there's lots of ways I can't help people. And, you know, even when we transition now, sorry, when I've transitioned now from doing my clinical and forensic work face-to-face -to, -face to being a writer and a speaker and a presenter, that's me helping people. But at the same time, it's meaningful work for me because I love the creativity of writing and crafting stories in a way that are engaging for a reader I love the artistry of that. That's for me. So that's a meaningful occupation. But at the same time, it's meaningful because it feels like it's helping to grow other people's lives through the stories that I tell. I, I'm so glad you broke that down. I've never stopped to think about the difference between purpose and meaning, you know, which ties me into when I, when I think about the stroke and, and what you've been through. Did it change how you moved your body, your exercise? We always talk about the importance of uh, getting outdoors or going for a hike or a walk. Has it changed what you do with your body physically? There have been some changes, Leo. I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh, I've always been a physical active. I like physical activity. You know, like at school I played sports not because I was a competitive person, but I liked the physical activity of it. I liked running, I liked ball games. And, but I was also a musician. I was playing, you know, classical guitar and playing in a, you know, high school rock band. And uh, I, I liked the feeling of my body being strong and fit and, you know, just pushing through, through nature. So uh, after my stroke, um, what really frustrated me was that I couldn't exercise. I experienced vertigo. I couldn't raise and lower my head. I was, didn't lose mobility, but I was actually physically very weak. I felt like an old man just walking to the shops. Uh, so it took me a while before I could engage in physical activity that I could do. So I actually had to start with Pilates because, and with the machines that Pilates practitioners use. Uh, because they could find exercises that I could do given my my restrictions at that time. 
And then I, I'm always been a keen swimmer, so I could swim in the pool, but I couldn't swim in the ocean where I live because of the up and down movement and the waves. But then I progressed to the waves and, you know, then I could get back to doing yoga, which I liked because of the, and then a gym. So this took several years for me to progress through that. Um, so the, the answer to your question is, did my physical activity change? In one sense, it didn't change. I was trying to get back to things that I did before. But in some other ways, it did change in two ways. The first way is that I learned that one of the, way, one of the best things for brain health is physical activity, particularly aerobic activity, because it increases oxygen supply and glucose supply to the brain. And interestingly, there's a brain, brain, chemical, brain chemical BDNF. It's brain-derived neurotropic factor. And you know how our neurons all connect to one another. And when we're learning something, they make new connections. One of the big roles of BDNF is that when we make new connections, it helps to cement those connections. So if I'm learning a new activity or a new skill, or just learning new information or maybe learning a new language. Uh, overnight, you know, our, our brain sorts through the memories to decide what's important to remember and what, what is it going to just put in the trash bin. So the BDNF will help cement those new connections that the brain decides are important. So what that means is that I was having trouble with memory, tremendous trouble with memory, and also focusing my attention as a result of where the uh, stroke affected my brain. So I found out from my neuroscience studies that exercise cements new learning. So people that exercise are going to be smarter because they're going to remember what they learn better. The second, the second thing I did that changed the way I, so, so sorry, the conclusion there is I really made sure I exercised every day as part of my brain recovery. The second thing is that I um, took up dancing because uh, I found out that dancing is one of the best activities you can do for brain health because it draws on so many aspects of brain activity. It draws on memory, it draws on balance, it draws on motor coordination, it draws on the emotions of the music. And, you know, I started doing five rhythms classes where you go through five different rhythms over two hours and the instructor tells you to move to the music starting from the feet up rather than from the head down. And as I started to move to the music, I found that all the grief and despair and feelings of trauma just unraveled out of my body. And that's when I realized that my body had stored a lot of that anguish uh, that I'd had from the years before and that hadn't necessarily come out in the psychotherapy that I did. So it became a body therapy that I wasn't expecting. I just took it up for brain health. And then lo and behold, at some point, I thought I'd really like to do partner dancing, you know, hold a woman again and, you know, have that social connection and, uh, you know, enjoy the sensuality of it. But I wasn't looking for sex. <laughs> but I just wanted that connection. Yeah. How long have you been uh, divorced now? Uh, we got divorced in uh, 2012. Wow. Yeah. It, Eight it, years. And then, you know, now the quarantine is here, so that, that makes it uh, doubly <laughs> uh, challenging. Now, is there a big quarantine where you are now or no? 
Well, or yeah, you- d- different parts of the country, but most of our country is out of quarantine now. Uh-huh. Yeah, we can go wherever we want to go. Well, now, now you want me, make me want to take up some ballroom dancing that Michelle has <laughs> offered up. She's like, we're going to go ballroom dance. I was like, no, I don't want to. But now that you're talking about brain health, I'm like, maybe I should go ballroom dancing. Uh, <laughs> just to mix it up. Um, is, there, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like would be valuable to the listeners who are, one, struggling with chronic pain, or two, struggling with suicidality that you feel like uh, would be valuable or three, uh, you know, uh, rehabbing from a stroke? I, I think uh, the comments I make are general because they're specific um, issues that you've raised. And I think one of the things, and this comes out of, you know, my investigation into human suffering and how we can grow through the suffering, is that when you're in the survival stage of something that's happened to you, chronic pain, stroke, suicide whatever and it can feel like there's no way out and you actually can't see any way out so really all you you're going on is hope hope that there might be something that will change the way things are for me and uh it's actually realistic to realistic to hold that hope um in in the power of suffering i detail stories from some people that are appear to be in absolutely hopeless situations but they've just had hope to hold on to. So if we hold on to hope and we we get through this survival period, things will start to change. So we'll start to notice moments of joy in our day. So when I was in the pits, I would try and do one thing in the day that brought me some joy. And in the early days when I couldn't do very much, that was just going to my local cafe, sitting with a coffee, reading the newspaper just by myself. That would be the highlight of my day. And, uh, you know, I'd schedule or it might be, a, you know, when I could swim in the ocean, it would be an ocean swim. So I think find those moments of joy and start to cultivate them as much as you can. Hold the hope and then start to reach out to people that you might not, not normally reach out to. It's surprising that when you go through a crisis, one of the good things that it does is that it unstrips you of pretension, it unstrips you of your sense of invincibility, it unstrips you of any inhibitions you had of actually asking for help. And so when you reach out to others, you'll find somebody that helps, you'll find some that won't, and it can take a bit of time before you find the right people. And the people that might help aren't necessarily the ones that you think would help, or they aren't necessarily identified health professionals, for example. So there were surprising people that came into my life, like a builder, an ex-builder who'd had an, his own nervous break, breakdown and we met through swimming and we would chat on the deck before we'd go off to the swim and he'd say, how are you going, Dave? You're looking better, Dave, you know, and I'd just say, how are you going? And, you know, because he'd been through a lot of strife, we had this immediate understanding of what it's like to have intense suffering and we're both coming out of it at that point so we find allies and self-help groups are great they're really good because you'll find understanding in self-help groups that you won't find anywhere else you'll be able to be yourself completely with other people that have been through or are going through a similar circumstance 
So reaching out and then opening to new possibilities. So when I was telling you about my therapy with the clinical psychologist and he was saying, you've got all this training, you've got all this experience, you are going to offer something to the world but you don't know what it is yet. So you will find new ways forward, but you just can't see them when you're in that survival period. David, those are so powerful. I just want to reiterate, find moments of joy, reach, uh, you know, uh, reach out for help, you know, find allies, self-help groups, align with, with other people, collaborate with other people, and then also to be open to new possibilities. Those are all super powerful. I'm glad you took this time to, to to share your thoughts and your story with us. Um, please tell us about your book and, and, or your two books actually, and where people can get those. Sure. Um, the new, the new book that's just come out this year is the power of suffering growing through life crises. And it's essentially, it's narrative driven. So it's real life stories. And I introduce, I'm in the stories cause I'm talking to the people describing where they are. And I introduce research particularly research around post-traumatic growth and, you know, take people out of the stories every now and then to say, well, what we can learn from this is this. So I talk about forgiveness, for example, when somebody's wronged you. And um, I, at the end of the book, it comes to a conclusion where I talk about people going through the hero's journey uh, when something unexpected happens, how we find our way through and then come back into the world, but a changed person and often a better person. And then finally, you know, the wisdom that people that have been through these life crises and grown from them can offer us, even if we haven't been through something like that. Uh, How I Rescued My Brain is about my story of recovering from trauma and stroke. It goes into quite a bit of neuroscience and psychotherapy, you know, what I did as well as my family situation at that time. And all those books are available on, on all the online bookshops as an audio book, as an e-book and a print book. Um, if you're in the States, you probably need to order the print book through Amazon UK or Book Depository because at, at this stage the print book's not immediately available in the States. And then last question, I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? I would say to them, don't give up. There is hope and you can't see it right now, but there's reason to go on. Thank you so much, Dr. David Rowland. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or the 1-800-273-TALK. There are also international phone numbers. There's talk, there's text, there are groups. All those are listed in all of the show notes. There's no excuse for you not to be able to reach out to someone and get the help that you need. Even if you want one-on-one, there are groups that will help pay for your therapy, pay for your in, uh, in-hospital treatment, there is help available. Uh, you, but you have to make the first step and let people know that you need it. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. David Roller. 
Thank you, Leo. It's been wonderful to chat with you.